Welcome to the Zero Room. Tonight, four people selected by an exacting vetting process and profoundly affected by the television drama Doctor Who will assemble to discuss the web of fear. Will the great intelligence triumph over the Doctor and his companions? Who is the mysterious Colonel Alistair Lethbridge-Stewart? What is the elderly Professor Travers hiding in his archaeological trove? All this and more will be revealed in the Zero Room. My name is Jamie Hellstone, and I hope yours isn't. And joining us here in the Zero Room tonight are Emma Davey and Robin Bunce. Say hello, Emma and Robin. Hello. Hello, Emma. And also joining us is the author, Tim Gambrell, author of many Candy Jar books and an expert on the brig, Web of Fear, and everything Doctor Who. Uh, thank you, Jamie. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Tim Gambrell. The Web of Fear is uh, probably one of my favourite 60s Doctor Who stories, and I'd, I'd argue that episode four in particular is probably my favourite black and white episode. I think it's a piece of almost perfect television. Um, and uh, as, as uh, Jamie said in his introduction, um, I, uh, I'm currently, or have been, uh, a contributor to uh, Candy Jar Books' uh, Lethbridge-Stewart range, and also the Lucy Wilson Mysteries, um, a spin-off from the Lethbridge-Stewart range. So I've had the joy of um, taking or looking at the Brigadier's life after the Web of Fear, uh, as he uh, journeys through the next few years between the Web of Fear and the formation of UNIT. Robin and Emma, having had a chance to watch Web of Fear, um, what were your hot takes on the story? I loved it. Uh, I think it's one of the best ones we've watched, actually. I really... What did you love about it? Well, the beginning, you've got these sort of three almost sort of separate storylines going on. You've got your, your, your... We were talking in the last podcast about Hammer Horror... Okay, so there's like that, that really horror, horror setting with, um, complete with um, candles and dark gothic house. Um, then you've got the Doctor and Jamie and Victoria, one minute nearly falling out of the TARDIS, next minute in stasis in space. And then you've got this seemingly secret underground sort of army bunker. So sort of how are these things connected? How does this happen? So I really enjoyed that beginning and... Um, the connection between that gothic house and then suddenly realizing what the what where the bunker was and what the the military um guys were doing i thought that was great great introduction to a story yeah i loved it too i thought it was fantastic i think it was very cinematic mm. um i really loved the way that it was by turns eerie and claustrophobic so the underground sets and the, un and the filming on the underground is all very, it's incredibly eerie. It's very dark, um, very echoey, very cavernous. And then you have the kind of cutaways to the military base bits. And they're all in tiny little rooms, so very, very claustrophobic. Lots of people squeezed into small spaces. And as Emma says, I think they've really, Doctor's really got into its stride. For a long time, I didn't know what the fuss was about with Web of Fear. I thought the Yetis looked ridiculous. 
But mm. having seen it, and when I saw it in 2013 for the first time, I could see why this one was a hit, and I could see why people were so keen to get this one back. Tim, what was your reaction when they announced that the Web of Fear had been returned to the BBC archives? Hey, I'm, I'm, sl- I'm slightly ashamed to um, to admit, but I was I was slightly disappointed when it was all announced because of the... Uh, I think I, I'd been sort of picked up and carried along by the whole sort of omni-rumour. Um, and um, it had kind of worked me up so much that when, when they eventually announced that there was just the nine episodes, I remember thinking, oh, that's so disappointing after all that build-up. On reflection, you look back and you think, well, the, there was no, no justification or background to it at all. And so on reflection, uh, I was able to kind of basically say, you know, sort it out, Gabriel appreciate what you've got here which is something completely wonderful it would have been amazing if they'd got episode three as well but just having it back i think i was probably like most other fans uh, of the period and desperate to to download it onto my um uh, phone from itunes when it was when it was uh, released i consumed it uh, avidly on my phone um and um and and then yeah picked up the dvd uh, when it eventually came out some months later. Now, it's one of those classic base under siege stories, mm. really, you know, with a, with a group of people sort of fighting for their lives. How do you think it sort of compares with other sort of Doctor Who stories in the era? Okay, so if we compare it with Moonbase or with Tomb of the Cybermen, I think, great though they are, they are very much one location. Whereas what you have in Web of Fear is, because the underground plays such a massive part in this, you get the sense that this is a much bigger story geographic you get the sense of being in london and being underneath london and it's clever because obviously all of the sets are the same when they're shooting in a studio um and you know they're probably just shooting up the same stretch of track again and again and again but because they're talking about you know leicester square or covent garden or whatever you get a sense that this is going on across the whole of london so i think yeah so this is based under siege but it's based under siege where the base is as big as the capital city. And I think that's exciting and interesting. How about you, Emma? I know, I agree. I mean, I, I, when I was watching it, I, I was thinking, gosh, here we are again with this um, kind of really claustrophobic um, space. But um, I felt that this was, um, yeah, as Robin said, much different to Moonbase and Tomb, but also very, very dark. And you have... Um, as Robin was saying, those eerie spaces as well that really adds to the claustrophobia. But at the same time, you know, you've, as Robin was saying, you've got all that space. Now, this is also Nick Courtney's first appearance as Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart. Uh, he later becomes, of course, the Brig uh, and appears in many, many, many Doctor Who stories after this. What did we think of his first appearance? He's so suspect. They're looking for this, um, you know, they, they, they're beginning to understand that the intelligence is infiltrating them in some way and he turns up. 
first you you know you're quite suspicious of him and of driver evans i think what i liked about his entry into the show is that he doesn't emerge in episode one and i think again this is a way in which it's different from moonbase and it's different from tomb of the cybermen in moonbase and tomb of the cybermen you have the same ca- you have a bunch of characters introduced in episode one and by and large they're the same characters you're dealing with in episode four whereas in web of fear you've got characters introduced early on who are quickly killed off and then you get more characters entering so it I think that gives it the feel like it's more of a real-life situation because people are coming in from the outside um, and people are kind of exiting and, you know, they're they're never heard of again. So, yeah, so I think um, my feeling about Nicholas Courtney, I don't know. I'm not a massive fan of the Brigadier as a kind of as a concept I'm not a massive fan of unit as a concept I that was never really my era of Doctor Who but I like the way he's used in this because what he does his his arrival implies that this is part of a larger world um which again is part of the whole expansive feel of Web of Fear this does feel like it's happening in the real world and it has real world consequences it's it's difficult isn't it to look at either the character or nick courtney's performance now with the intent that that was originally behind the, the character in the story because of what's come since he he, he carries so much baggage really in in terms of um in terms of what the character went on to mean for the series as a as a whole so it's it is a shame that we lose that we lose that kind of concern as to whether or not he might actually be the great intelligence all along because as soon as he walks on on the screen he nails it right from the start i mean he's he's there immediately you know this guy he has authority he's got he's got charisma he's got charm as well he's got an awful lot of screen presence and because he's got all of those things anyway, he, he, even though we bring baggage to the Web of Fear when we watch it from having seen the, you know, the Brigadier as he became in, in, in lots of other stories, you can see straight away that Nick, Nick Courtney's just, he's got it straight away. Bang, he's in there with it. But as I said, you, the, the shame is that you lose the, um, uh, you lose the mystery as to whether or not he could possibly be the big baddie, after all. One of the uh, criticisms frequently levelled about uh, sci-fi of this era, of course, is that it doesn't have many f- uh, strong female roles. But mm. the Web of of course, has Anne Travers, who's yes. uh, quite a strong character. What did we make of Anne Travers? I thought she was great. Um, I've got a great quote from Anne, actually. So one of the, the military guys says to her, what's a girl like you doing a job like this? And so she replies... Well, when I was little, I thought I'd like to become a scientist. So I became a scientist and I just love it. Mm. Yeah, no, I love Anne Travis. I think she's the beginning of a number of different Doctor Who characters like Zoe and like Romana. Who's Pert to his first assistant? Liz Shaw. The late 60s is a time when feminism is clearly, you know, making waves culturally. And I think that is reflected in the 60s and the 70s in the show in the casting and the creation of female characters. And I think Anne Travers is really the first of, of a wave of characters who reflect a kind of serious engagement with feminism. So yeah, she gave a fantastic performance and she's really compelling. And her dialogue is, not only does she have some good sharp dialogue, but she delivers it, you know, with real panache. So yeah, I think she's an absolute, you know, I wish they made her a recurring character rather than a brigadier, if I'm honest, but there we are.
Now, at the end of these podcasts, what we often do is we talk about the idea of what could have been spun off from a particular story. Now, yeah. obviously, um, th- there are spin-offs in this case in terms of the uh, Candy Jar book range. So I was wondering if you could sort of tell us sort of what happens next with people like Professor Travers and the Brig in terms of Candy Jar. The Lethbridge-Stewart range picks up uh, a number of uh, the characters after the Web of Fear. So, of course, it picks up Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart and Anne Travers and Professor Travers, her father. Also, Harold Chorley and Driver Evans, who turns up in a, in a, in a few stories. Really, I think the books to date or the, or the, or the story arc that was told up until uh, a couple of years ago with them, um, that kind of finished with uh, Nick Walter's book, uh, The Man From Yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, that takes most of those characters through, um, through their own arcs. So uh, the Colonel, we follow him through into uh, kind of forming an initial sort of like a task force, uh, like a pre-unit, and all of his, um, his uh, adventures and his negotiations towards that, uh, which culminate in him being made a brigadier, and then later on will, of course, lead to, lead to the actual formation of, of unit. So he goes through um, a major story arc there, and there's lots of personal details about Lethbridge-Stewart with his uh, family, and so it's not all sort of blood and thunder adventures it's uh, you know it's it's largely character driven character driven stories um similarly with Anne and professor travers travers is clearly quite badly affected by the events of of the web of fear uh he's an old man anyway and seems to sort of hasten his um his sort of demise lethbridge Stewart keeps Anne on as um as an advisor and so we get to know Anne a lot more and we tend to experience um, her father's illness and um, sort of dementia-related issues through through Anne's eyes. So it's it's a very personal story again, led, led by her. It takes place over a number of books as as the series progresses. Driver Evans, who's largely sort of goofy comic relief in the Web of Fear, he's um, he's I think he's either a character that really annoys you or that you're quite taken with I think I think he's a bit of a Marmite character uh, Evans but again the uh, the Candy Jar range has picked him up and an acknowledgement of of his sort of reticence to be involved and the comedy value of that but actually working him through again as a believable character and and giving him uh, giving him a, a real kind of progression and a, a you know a sense of where he is in the world and what he could achieve and giving him the support to actually move on and and have something of an impact with his life I think in in, in the case of, of Driver Evans which is uh, fun it's a fun journey to um, to go on as a reader I've not had to write for uh, for Evans myself I've enjoyed following his um, his progress as a reader for sure and we said this before and we'll probably say it again in future episodes a lot of six-parters and seven-part Doctor Who stories really struggle to sort of maintain the quality. There, there can be a bit of a dip. Mm. It, it, it can be a hard thing to sort of keep the story going. I think Web of Fear actually does keep the story going. Uh, well, am I right in thinking that Troughton is basically not in episode two? Yeah. He so took what, a holiday. What's the story there? Why, why is he not in episode two? Was he ill? Or? He took a holiday. Um, Doctor Who... <laughs> when they were filming Doctor Who in the 60s, they filmed it 44 weeks a year. And in order to give the actors a, a week off now and again, they would occasionally write them out deliberately. Mm. Uh, this was also the case 
in Celestial Toymaker, starring William Hartnell, because the first Doctor is in the first story. He then gets turned invisible by the Celestial Toymaker for two episodes <laughs> and returns for the fourth episode. And that was wow. to give William Hartnell at the time a two-week holiday. I think what I've realised by watching the last few episodes is that the Troughton era is actually really good. I think I'd never appreciated how good the Troughton era was. But everything we've seen, so Tomb of the Cybermen and Moonbase and now Web of Fear, all of it, they're, they're really going at it with absolute conviction and absolute commitment. So I love the, what's the word, the, um, the gun which shoots the, the webs. I loved that. I loved the kind of the webs and the foam or the smoke or whatever it is. I thought clearly what they're doing at the BBC is they're thinking, what can we do well? There's a lot of stuff they can't do well in terms of special effects in the 1960s. But they are thinking very clearly about what they can do well and they are absolutely committing to it. So, yeah, so I think because the first the first Trouton story I ever saw was The Crotons, I think, which was part of that 1981 retrospective Five Faces of Doctor Who, whatever it was called. And that was rubbish. Because the Crotons were so bad, I think I, um, I kind of wrote off the Troughton era unfairly. But I think the episodes we've seen recently lead me to believe that the Troughton era is absolutely fantastic. That was the Zero Room podcast. Our thanks to Tim Gamble, Emma Davey and Robin Butts. Tune in next time and we'll be discussing The Mind Robber. Thank <laughs> you.